Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Today's episode is hosted by James. He is joined by Chris Silvers, owner of CG Silvers Consulting, to talk about how someone with a hacker mindset can turn a prank into a powerful attack vector. Chris and James do some role play and reenact a couple of calls from a social engineering attack Chris has done in the past. Follow the human side of cybersecurity with the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. So we'll jump right in, as we always do at the start, of how did you first get into information technology and technology in general? Well, uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm one of the few people who actually got into information security directly and didn't kind of take a path through information technology. So, um, in fact, I remember taking a class on Windows 95 after I got I started with the information security department. So it's kind of reverse fit. You got into the it, it, the opposite way to most people, and you didn't start off in IT yeah. and then work into the the pen testing and security side of things. You started off, on yeah, the exactly. Side. Um, and, and I could have taken kind of the policy path. That was the natural path of. Uh, I was working at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, and uh, they were just. It, it was like they were bleeding staff, right? They. They, they just needed people. Nobody wanted to work in security back in those days. It was not cool whatsoever, right? Uh, it, it, in fact, uh, I used to joke that it, that it was sort of like when you were, you were selling insurance or something. You know, people saw you coming and they're like, oh, don't talk to him. He's, he's with information security, right? So, um, but, but it just so happened that the, one of the first projects that was kind of thrown on my desk, it was a war dialing report. And for those who don't know what war dialing is, uh, obviously you can go Google that now, but, uh, but it's basically uh, calling up modems and seeing if they will answer and then um, kind of breaking into a computer via a modem connection. Uh, so I saw the report and I, was, and I was told to just kind of handle it like sort of like an auditor would, like go to the people who own the modems and have them do a security review. But the more I read the report, the more I thought, well, this is really cool. This is, you know, th there's a practical application here. So I took it a little different route, learned about, quote unquote, hacking. Um, back then, I, I had to enter a like a a Google or a search engine called Alta Vista. This was pre-Google days, right? And it was kind of like, you know, how to hack a modem sort of stuff. And and then just learned and just started digging into the technology from there and just appreciated, you know, what the technology could do and how people could just literally get fooled by the technology. And that that's just has fascinated me for a quarter of a century now. So that must have been quite a, a good role to start in if you were able to come in not being a technologist and just look at the problems and go, okay, let's think about these as an organization and how we might use them to our advantage or tackle those problems. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, dealing with um, dealing with a lot of the people in IT, um, it always frustrated me that we would, you know, we would tell them, here's the security requirements. This is what you have to do. But many times we couldn't explain to them why. And so it was really hard to get buy in. And, and I felt like if I get on their level, maybe maybe we'll get more buy in. And that's, you know, to me, that's just so key to an organization, getting everybody to buy into the security culture. And how did you go about doing you know those things getting getting the buy-in and, and working with people and tackling projects in what i'm guessing were probably quite unusual ways compared to what a lot of people would have been used to yeah well um <laughs> it, it it led to my first technical professional certification a ccna um I, I studied a lot i read a lot uh i i uh browsed the internet a lot um in fact the first six months um, uh, once I got the wife and the kids to bed, I would go downstairs and get on our, our one computer that I think by that time we had DSL. Um, and I would search Alta Vista and, and just, you know, follow all these links and, and all that stuff. And there were many nights that, uh, around three o'clock in the morning, my wife would come downstairs and kind of like, uh, you need to get to bed. You have to work in the morning. <laughs> and I was like, Five hours have gone. Are you crazy? It, it seemed like five minutes. So uh, it was just it was just really consuming. 
is one of those things you just dig into. That's fantastic. And then obviously you had your curiosity and that was working at the, the Federal Reserve. How did you then transition into going to Home Depot in the, the retail industry? Well, I, I always like to say that, that the, Fed, the Federal Reserve system, um, and I think, it, and I truly believe it's still this way to some extent at least, it's a great place to learn. It's a, it's a great place to start your career. Um, at some point, though, unless you're going to get into management or kind of move around different areas, um, once you find sort of the thing that you want to be an expert in, uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a limit there. Um, it's because it's such a nurturing environment, it's not quite as challenging as an environment as other places. And so, uh, so it was, you know, after almost 10 years with the Federal Reserve, um, I had sort of felt like I played all that out and I was looking for something different, um, bounced around a couple places and, uh, wound up at the Home Depot, uh, where I have to say, I, I, um, I met some great people, worked with some fantastic people, um, and had the opportunity to really grow there. So, um, yeah, and, and, and it turned out to be like kind of a friend of a friend of a friend sort of, you know, networking who, who got me in there. And, and where did the, the social engineering side that you're probably best known for, where did that thread start to, to weave into your, your career? Well, I, you know, funny enough, it started at the Federal Reserve. We, um, you know, I, I don't remember what year it was. It it had to have been before 2000. So because I know it was when we were in the old building um, uh, down on Marietta Street in downtown Atlanta. Uh, I can remember uh, coming across this topic of social engineering, like people. Uh, and back then it wasn't really so much email phishing as it was like physically breaking into a building. Like, you know, getting someone to hold the door open for you and that kind of stuff. And and uh, one of my teammates and I used used to do that um, downtown uh, because there were there were satellite locations around downtown that that we never really went to that people wouldn't recognize us. So we would just take our our badges and put them in our pockets and and, you know, stand outside with some donuts or something like that and wait for somebody to hold the door open for us. And, and we would get in. So, uh, you know, we just thought it was kind of a, a fun twist to, uh, to to security testing. And that, so that was something you just spun up yourselves. There wasn't a requirement to go and do the physical testing or? Um, no, again, I had a really good, um, a, a really good manager at the Federal Reserve who, who pushed me to think outside the box once, once she saw kind of the value of the whole idea of penetration testing and kind of, I, I don't think we really didn't call it red teaming back then, but, but penetration testing was, was like what you see as red teaming these days. Right. We, we did have a red team, blue team and white team on our engagements, but we never called it that. We just called it penetration testing. What was the output of those engagements? And so obviously you, you, you got into places, you managed to get a level of access, you presumably wrote reports up. Did you then go and deliver training back to those staff and start in the education yes, side as well? Absolutely. And, and that's really, um, I mean, I had done some presentations before that with the Federal Reserve, like educating uh, so let, let me take a step back. Just, just before information security, I worked in the funds transfer department. That's electronic fan, funds transfer, um, like when people wire money, right? Um, <clears throat> which was a great experience. And one of, uh, one of my duties there was to go around the, um, the district, the sixth Federal Reserve District, so that's Alabama, Florida, et cetera, and give presentations to our customers, which are banks, like the normal banks, about the changing format of a, a wire transfer. And so um, so my, my manager and I went around and we gave um, little talks, uh, very entertaining talks, because it's very dry subject matter, um, really entertaining talks on the wire transfer format. Right. So um, so I had some experience in public speaking uh, when I got to the Federal Reserve. They had a very active um, Toastmasters group. So I was always involved in that. And then, yes, I, I would actually take the results of these penetration tests or security testing. And we had a monthly meeting with our uh, 
security awareness group where I would give talks about, you know, the results of different tests and, and kind of educating people about not letting people tailgate you or, you know, things like that. And then did that, is that what led you into the general OPSEC? Because I know you've not only done this in, in industry and educated people in industry, but you've got a bit of a passion for educating the wider community, especially young people around some of these things. So do you want to just explain how that, that came to be? Well, um, an opportunity uh, came up uh, when my wife was a, a school teacher um, for, a, for a high school, for a private high school here in the Atlanta area. And they were looking for someone to come in and talk about cybersecurity. It was, um, I, I, I don't remember if it was during Cybersecurity Awareness Month, but they, they were having like a Cybersecurity Awareness Week or day or whatever it was. And they had had people from the FBI and, you know, all these like, you know, high profile people. And I guess somebody canceled or something. And they were like, well, you know, what about Chris Silvers? Can he, you know, he's, he's a cybersecurity guy. Can he come talk to us? So, um, so I brought a little different flavor, right? I think I showed uh, the students like three different attack vectors, little, uh, you know, utilities that you could, you could use for man in the middle attacks and and little cute things like that. So, uh, and and it just had a blast. I, I remember the uh, after the first talk, the principal came up to me um, after my talk, and he said, he said, Chris, uh, you had them literally in the palm of your hand. And I was like, What do you mean by that? You know, and and why is that so special? He said, He said, No, you don't understand. This is homecoming week. Right. This is the Friday of homecoming week. And, and it is almost impossible to get these teenagers to focus on anything. And when you started giving them the statistics about Facebook, and, and this was a little while ago, that that if you have a thousand friends and your friends have a thousand friends, then those friends of friends can see every post on your Facebook because of your, you know, the default permissions. He said. We could have heard a pin drop in this in this um, in the Coliseum. He was like, it was amazing. He was, I've never seen a speaker hold the attention of our kids like you did, and I and it was just very gratifying. And I I just you know so um, so ever since then I've just I've got a soft spot for corrupting our youth, right, <laughs> one one kid at a time. I think it's worth reminding people that you know Facebook isn't what it is today. I mean, people think it's bad enough today, but actually. Not that many years yeah. ago, it was a lot more permissive in terms of the data that was shared. And like you say, connections of connections could see posts and information. Yeah. I, I actually wrote a, a research paper on it many years ago about the dangers of, you know, burglars being able to see when you're on holiday and things through through connections. So it it really did used to be a lot more Wild West. So I'm sure that was that was very interesting at the time. And you then sort of went on to start developing a bit of a training course for children in this area. Is that right? Uh, yes, uh, we... We had um, a friend of ours had was running a village at DefCon, and so um, so they had asked us that they had sort of a teenager ver version of their village and a young kid version, and so uh, so my wife and I kind of developed uh, some. Uh, well, it was more of a competition or I like to call it more of a competition than a training session, but we did a little bit of workshopping for the kids as well. Right. Um, and, and actually, um, in about two weeks, um, I'm speaking with some some Girl Scouts. Um, uh, I guess they're uh, technically I guess they're called brownies because they're um, they're the younger ones and, and going to present some cybersecurity uh, demonstrations for them as well. Excellent. And what does the what does the competition involve? Well, so um, so we had built this platform uh, back about seven years ago. Um, this it really just relies on an open source scoring engine, but we built this competition called the Open Source Intelligence Capture the Flag Contest, um, or OSINT CTF, and we actually run this competition at a lot of conferences. We we've run it at uh, DerbyCon, uh, GurCon, NolaCon, a, a lot of the conferences that that you mentioned in my introduction. Um, in fact, that's that's mostly what we do now uh, is run this competition instead of instead of giving talks and things. And uh, I believe that unlike the DEF CON competitions, that you actually have some volunteers who are, who are up for 
for being involved in this and they, they have the, the children trying to engineer them directly. Yes. Um, and, and again, it, it's not just for kids. We, we do an adult version as well. In fact, uh, we do the adult version more, more often, but, um, not, not that kids are excluded. I mean, I, you know, whoever wants to join is, is welcome to join in, but yeah. So the open source intelligence capture the flag contest, um, it, it was basically born out of my frustration with most CTFs. Most CTFs are very, very difficult. And if you, I used to say, if you don't have a PhD in cryptography, you don't belong <laughs> competing in the CTF. So, so we created this for the less technical individuals, um, but to kind of show them that there are skill sets over and beyond highly technical, highly specific skill sets that are valuable in security. Right. So um, so instead of made up targets, right, we use real people and those real people volunteer. So we we uh, affectionately call them volun targets um, because they're they're nice enough to kind of put their digital lives out there on display for for our contestants. Um, We we highly control what pieces of evidence that the contestants are supposed to look up. Uh, because we we get approval from the volunteer targets, uh, but basically, you know, the the platform or the infrastructure for the contest is the internet. So that's that's good and bad, right? Um, it's easy because it's always there, um, but it's a little difficult because it's always changing. And that's what I tell people, you know, the the internet is always changing. There's always new stuff added, stuff deleted. It's you know, it's almost organic and. Um, and, and it makes for some very interesting conversations, you know, after the competition, you know, everybody, each team, it's all team-based and each team wants to know how each other team was able to find, you know, specific pieces of information. So it always, it always brings up some great conversations. And do any of your volunteers ever accidentally share things that they only discover from the competition? Yes. Um, in fact, uh, I would say 99% of all competitions end with one of the volunteer targets coming up to me and saying, how on earth did someone find that? I would not have thought it was on the internet, right? I, I love that. That's, that's one of those light bulb moments, right? That, that are fun. And that, that's fantastic that you're doing that for the kind of, the audience maybe less technical or less experienced and opening up to them that they've not only been able to do this thing, but they've been able to find information that someone didn't even realize was out there for them to find. So I think that's a, that's a really nice lesson on both well, sides. Yeah, and, and it's been really gratifying because a lot of these conferences, like Gurkhan's a great example. Um, there's a new one, well, not really new conference, but sort of new to us that's in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin called CypherCon. They focus a lot on students. There's a brand new conference that came out this year that we participated in called Hack RedCon, very focused on students. And... Um, and I think the contest provides not only some education and some some confidence building for these students who are new to security, but I think it also provides them a little bit of fodder for their resume. I've, I've seen a few LinkedIn profiles of some previous competitors where they actually posted on their LinkedIn profile, you know, that they won the OSINT CTF at, you know, whatever conference. And, um, you know, and, and when when students come to me and want some career advice, I tell them one of the key elements is to compete in a CTF. So whether it's mine or, or anybody else's, because there's a lot of them out there, just keep competing um, because that's how you get your name out there. That's how, you, that's how you network with other individuals, especially if you join a team with people you've never met before. You know, competing on a team together is a really great way of networking and and uh you know creating some good relationships absolutely and i think absolutely fantastic career advice there just to go above and beyond and get involved in things and it's not only the the learning process but you know just thinking differently about these things like in in your early career right where you get into the the kind of if i just approach it from this side i can do something differently and that's a really good introduction to breaking out of you know standard kind of course of you learn this programming language you learn to do a, a vulnerability scan well actually what if we think about it from other people's perspective so i think that's really great advice yeah and and it also substitutes for experience right because every employer wants 
uh, somebody coming out of college, they want them to have five years of experience. And it's like, well, how am I going to get this experience? Who's going to give me an opportunity to show that I can I can actually do these things, right? I can display skills. And I think CTFs provide a perfect opportunity for that. Absolutely. It's that, that concept of recruit for attitude, then you can train for skill. Like, you know, they will have a level of skill to begin with, but they're proving that they've got the right attitude that they want to learn. They want to to grow yeah, in this area. So that's fantastic. Um, this is a slightly unusual podcast in that you've actually sent me a script uh, prior to this for us to run through some dialogue. So we're going to have to set the scene for this, I think. So speaking of DEF CON, tell us about your, your call center attacks that you and your friend Taylor Banks did. Right. Excellent. So I uh, appreciate the shout out to Taylor Banks. Uh, many people know him across the internet as Dr. Chaos, and that's chaos with a K, by the way. Uh, yes, Taylor's a longtime friend of mine, a great, great, serious hacker. And um, this this talk that we gave at DEF CON, it was called On the Hunt. Uh, and the, the pun there is uh, it's all about hunt groups. And so if you're familiar with uh, like call centers that, that receive, you know, massive numbers of calls a day uh, and they have a staff of it's sometimes in the same office, sometimes remotely. And there's a piece of software that routes those calls and it's called a hunt group and it routes those calls to individuals who, you know, claim a call and then they pick it up so that no one else answers the call. So the, the concept um, is, you know, what would happen in a make-believe world if that software was on the fritz? What would happen if that software messed up to where it routed the call to two different um, technicians and those two technicians were to answer the call at the same time? What would happen, right? Hilarity would ensue. Um, so Taylor was actually um, telling me one time over beers that when he was a kid, just as a kind of a prank, he used to use this feature called three-way calling, which now I think we, we you know, it's, it's kind of built into iPhone where you can just add a call. Um, but back then we called it three-way calling. I think you had to pay for something for it. But, uh, but anyway, he would, he would call um, the home shopping network. And as soon as just before the person would answer, he would dial them again and join the two calls so that the two operators would two operators would answer at the same time. And he would just kind of he would mute his phone and just listen into the conversation. And he said he was just doing it. That's out of boredom. Right. He's just a kid. And he's doing this. And he started noticing that the conversations would turn from, oh, you know, sorry, there's a mistake. Click to actual conversations like. Hey, so, you know, where are you headed tonight? Are you, you know, have you tried that new pub on Third Street or, you know, things like that? And he just found it fascinating. He was telling me that. And, you know, being my social engineering kind of, you know, Dr. Evil mind, I thought, I wonder if someone could weaponize that. Right. That's that's sort of always my question about anything. But um, and so we got to talk and it was like, yeah, you could, because after, you know, doing that over and over and over and over again, basically you've performed open source intelligence um, over the phone and you've gathered all kind of valuable information. So then could you take it the next step and pretend to be one of those technicians who answered the phone? Right. I mean, you know, based on all the, the institutional knowledge that you would pick up right from the phone calls. So uh, so fast forward. Maybe a, about a year later, I, I got a, a client who uh, who liked the idea <laughs> and and they had a big call center and they were concerned about call center risk. So um, so they provided the opportunity for me to do it. So, of course, I recorded all the calls uh, and then to prepare for this talk, I kind of bleeped out all the the actual sensitive information. Um, and, and that's what we did as our talk. I, I played some of the calls some, and so that you could kind of hear the dialogue. So, that's fantastic. And yeah. we have the dialogue written down. So we're going to recreate some of these, these famous calls that you, you, um, you participated in and that, you know, you listened into the people having the conversations and use that to your advantage to then jump into those conversations. And what I, I particularly like about this is we're kind of, we're looking at, at, you know, modern systems that people are dealing with but you're doing the social engineering side of it. And you're also, there's that sort of nod back to the early days of hacking of freaking and, you know, abusive phone systems and things like that. So it's, I think it's a, it's a wonderful combination of techniques all coming together in this to do that true hacker mindset of thinking of things in, in a different way. So uh, 
audience, forgive me, I'm not going to try and do an American accent for this one, but we're going to uh, we're going to jump in with the first role play here, which is uh, me and Chris, and we're going to uh, recreate this scenario where he was dealing with an employee at a call center. So, Chris, if you pull up your script and you can kick us off, and I will play sure. along. So now, um, if I remember right, we're going to do call number two, right? Yes, that's so right. Just, yeah. So just a quick setup for the for the audience. This this is a snippet that was in the call, so it's not at the start of the call. So you know, while the while the call was going on, we had already kind of gotten through the preliminaries of of each pretending to or me pretending to be one of the technicians, right? Okay, you ready, James? I'm ready as I'll ever be. Okay. Okay, so uh, so are are you using the browser plugin? I'm using the soft phone. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, huh? well that well that's weird. That's weird. Uh, I'm I'm on my PC on my laptop. It's happened before in the past. Something with the hunt groups weird. They uh, sometimes they root calls weird, and it's not the browser. I use like three different browsers. It's got nothing to do with the browsers. I've got Chrome here, IE, and Firefox up. Huh, well that that's strange. Uh, are we supposed to report this or something to somebody? Nah, it just happens. So that's that's the conversation we had, and you can quickly see how that person you're talking to, and you're dealing with, you know, some confusion here, but they're starting to reveal bits of information. So, what what were you pulling out of that conversation? Yeah, so um, so there had been uh, some uh, initial information pulled, you know, kind of previously uh, about like that they that there a there was a browser plugin that you could use to control your phone. Um, you know, th that they had implemented, recently implemented a soft phone. But the main pieces there uh, in that particular call was um, was really adding the uh, that he was using a laptop, a PC, uh, the, the term hunt group that even though it's kind of an old term, it seems like a lot of these call center employees were familiar with it um, and that he used. Chrome, IE, or Firefox, right? So, so they didn't necessarily have one specific standard. So, I, I would be able to talk through, you know, uh, the the idea that uh, the problem, right, that problem out there of two individuals answering the phone together might have been caused by a, a version of their browser, right, or the operating system or something. And I guess you're you're picking up on all their internal lingo, like you say. You know, they use the term hunt group, and they might call them manager a certain thing. I think it was was it team captain or something. I recall from the presentation. Yeah, I think it was. Um, yeah, team captain. So, uh, and, and that was actually in in like the first call was really educational. Like um, some different business units, like biz application support, exchange support. Uh, they had used. Some people used Polycom phones instead of instead of a browser plugin. Yeah, so kind of gathering all that stuff up. So as as this um, as, as this moves on as a, an investigation from your perspective, you're you're capturing lots of information about the company. You're learning the the lingo, the department names, the some of the people involved, perhaps, and some of the managers' names. How, how many calls did you kind of get into before you decided to sort of take it to the next level and try and get the user to actively do something on your behalf? Um, so, so I, in the presentation, I only included like five different calls, right? Or actually six. There was kind of a bonus at the end where um, where something positive for the client had happened that I wanted to kind of show, but uh, but to to gather that much and to get the ultimate goal. Which was to get remote control of one of the uh, one of the agents' computer, right? That was kind of the ultimate goal of the test. Um, I probably total placed fifty calls, may maybe a hundred even. Um, especially if you count the the calls where I was just trying to connect and listen, right? Because because part of part of the reason this works is. What I want is I want every single agent to have experienced this issue so that by the time I start injecting myself, it's not a surprise to anyone. It's it's an accepted, oh, well, something's wrong. And yeah, we know something's wrong. And, you know, different people have have heard kind of, you know, a little bit different takes on it, but it's sort of moved. It's sort of permeated, which which is contrary to most social engineering calls. Right. Right. Usually you don't want anyone else to have heard your spiel, 
<laughs> right? Because um, then they're then they're aware of it. But but in this case, it's it's kind of flipping the script. So you're basically trying to create such a problem in the call center that you can empathize with the call center employee about the problem yeah. and pretend that you're yes. also suffering the same issues. Yes. And use that to gain kind of empathy and trust with with the employee, right? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. We're we're putting the problem up here and you and I are going to fight this problem. We're buddies okay. now, right? <laughs> well, now we're buddies. You're going to try and get me to download and run something on your behalf to prove. I'm assuming this this wasn't actually a malicious payload you were delivering. This was just a, a proof of concept. Yeah. Yes, just just an innocuous executable that had uh, system level access. That that was all. <laughs> so we're yeah. going to run through the scenario now of how Chris gets me as the employee to try and run some software that has system level access. It's not going to give him a reverse shell or anything, but it's going to prove that he can get an employee to run something with with a level of access there. Right. So, okay. Ready, so Chris? this so this one this one starts with a with a ring, and as soon as you start speaking i'm i'm speaking simultaneously so we'll see if we can time this right okay, okay well we can have a few takes if, if we don't get it so I'll, <laughs> I'll break in with a ring and then we'll go ready okay sure Bring. thank you for calling thank you onboarding. for calling blah, blah blah onboarding this is tyson uh, can, may i have your you, name please can you hear me hello uh, yes yes can you hear me yeah, I can hear you. I think we must have gotten crossed here because I'm with the advisor team. So I'm sure that's why the calls come through to both of us. Yeah, that that's weird. This is Tyson. I'm with onboarding. Uh, what what was your name again? Uh, it's Renee. Okay, and and who are you with, Renee? Uh, I'm with Beep. <laughs> with Beep. Okay, uh, that's weird. Uh, are are you in voice or biz apps? Um, uh, well, th this this actually happened yesterday. It was uh, another onboarding call. I actually have a ticket open with ISA on it. Uh, I spoke with Howard. He wanted me to find out, are, are you using the next-gen phone system or the upgraded system? No, I, I'm using the old system that we got like three years ago now. Okay, so you're just using the Polycom instead of the browser plug-in, right? Yeah, correct. Okay, cool. Um, well, listen, do you have a few seconds? He wanted me to gather some information. This seems to be happening a good bit lately. Yeah, sure. Okay, so um, are you on the WISE system or are you on a laptop? I'm on WISE. Okay, okay. And that's running Windows 7, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Renee, Renee I guess you're in the office, right? Uh, no, no, I'm a home worker. Ah, okay, home worker. Um, do you have Service Pack 1 on the WISE system? I was just upgrading to the new Service Pack. Okay, is that showing Service Pack 1? Uh, should be build 7601. Uh, I think the only way I can see that is if I log out, I believe. Well, you know, actually, he said that the easiest way to get this information is to go out to beep.com, and that will do a quick inventory and show you operating system and software stuff. Oh, beep.com? Yeah, beep.com. <laughs> this is... Uh, one second. Yeah, th this site's for gaming? Yeah, if you go to the to the my computer information, there's a download called Detection that you can run, and it, it will just produce a report. Uh, okay, computer details. Just let me run that. Uh, okay, I have Service Pack One build seven six zero one sixty four bit. Okay, uh, just to make sure, you're you're on the Advanced tab, right? Uh, I was on the Basic tab. I can I'll click the Advanced. Okay, right. So click on advanced. It's just scroll down. That'll show you the operating system build 7601, right? Uh, yes, I'm on Windows 7 Service Pack 1 build 7601. Okay, excellent. I'll, I'll let Howard know. Thank you so much, Renee. Thanks. Okay, so that, that's fascinating to see that, that flow there of how you're quickly going from, we're both in a bad situation here. We've had some lines crossed too go to a website that isn't part of the company, I assume. There's literally some gaming CPU performance statistics yeah, I, tool. Yeah, I, li I literally spoofed uh, a gaming site um, and ju just to, I don't know, just to drive the point home that it should have nothing to do whatsoever with the company or any kind of official Microsoft or anything, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the old thing, don't go to gaming sites because you'll get a virus, right? Yeah, so it's it's a fascinating example, and all the time with it, you're you're reassuring me because you're saying things like, "You're on Windows Seven, right?" Or you've got this. So I, I'm just assuming because of the knowledge you've picked up from these prior calls that you're 
part of my organization and you know these things. So um, it was kind of interesting. I, I inadvertently uh, used a, a different technique um, kind of unintentionally. So usually, yeah, it, it, the more I know and the more that I can ask questions that are just confirming, uh, the better. Right. Uh, that just leads the person, you know, it, it just it just creates that feeling in their mind that, OK, he must be knowledgeable. Right. Um, but in some situations, if you're wanting to find out information, you can you can intentionally say something that's false. Right. Like, uh, I, you know, you must be an office worker. Right. And they say no. But she didn't just say no. She said, no, I'm a home worker. Right. So it it pulled in more information. It's like somewhat, you know, asking someone, you know, you don't have a watch on, do you? Oh yeah, I've got a watch. It's uh, 1251. Well, I didn't ask you what time it was, but you offered it, you know, or, um, you know, just using a negative to draw out information. And there was a, a piece in there where you mentioned that you had a ticket open with ISA and you'd spoken with Howard. So could you just explain that part of it? <laughs> So there was a previous call, and I, and I don't remember if we actually played this in the presentation or not, but there was this lady who was just very helpful, okay? She just, you could tell, uh, once I set her at ease and once once I convinced her that, you know, this thing was going on, she just got a little chatty with me, and she said that I needed to open a ticket with, and, and she told me the acronym, but uh, I won't say it because I don't want to give away anything, but, but it came down to ISA. And so she said, you need to contact ISA. And I said, is there somebody in particular I should call over there? And she said, yeah, call Howard. He, you know, he'll help you out. So, um, so I, I never placed a call to Howard, but I figured he must be pretty helpful. And, you know, if, if she knew him, then maybe other employees would know him as well. So again, that's, I use that a lot with, um, and, and also the, the Tyson, that was actually one of one of their employees who I happened to notice when I was speaking with Tyson, I think I actually called Tyson like three times. Um, it turned out his voice sounded very much like mine. And when I was kind of playing the recordings, so I thought, well, why don't I just claim to be Tyson? Right. Cause who's going to know the difference, right? I might get caught, but then again, you know, I might not. And apparently, yeah, this lady was not suspicious at all. And did you ever run into any employees who were suspicious and kind of wouldn't play the game, wouldn't download any software, wouldn't do the things you're asking? Um, I, usually, for this particular scenario, no one really got suspicious. There was there was one woman who, uh, and I don't know why she was different, but she was not able to actually install the software, right? So that was the that was call number six. The the kind of the positive thing was. Um, I guess maybe she was a new employee or something, and they had just started setting up new employees who didn't have uh, administrative access to their computers. So she wasn't able to install the software, right? Um, in that call, though, because, you know, I, I do what I can, um, I remember uh, she said it wouldn't, it wouldn't let her install. And so, uh, so I said, okay, so you're in you know, what, what area are you in? Okay. And, and what was your name and, and who's your supervisor's name? Let me, um, you know, so I just kind of pulled a few, a little bit more information out of her, um, just to kind of salvage the call. Yeah. So even when it's, it's not gone the way you intended, you were able to adapt and actually use it to your advantage to gain more information and understand maybe who that person is, why they are blocked and start to build a better picture of that part of the organization. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's another, a, another interesting twist to a lot of social, engineering calls, um, it's, we, we usually call it flipping the script. When somebody gets suspicious or, or you have to like change your pretext on the fly, um, it's, it's something that, that I've not always been very good at, um, but, but I try to, try to work on that a lot. Is if, if I get an objection, then just try to take it a different direction. And the, the spoof game insight you're directing employees to, is that something you did a lot of research into to choose the domain or are you just trying to really see if we can push them onto a, a random site on the internet? Yeah, for the, for the most part. I mean, I, I own, I don't know, 10 or 12 different domains out there. Um, sometimes <laughs> sometimes it's kind of a, a funny you know naming game. Somebody will think of something and be like, hey, I wonder if that domain's taken, right? And you just buy it for a dollar or whatever. But um, I have kind of some standards out there that I have that are that are generic. So 
Um, just depends on the situation, right? Um, sometimes I want it to seem legit, and then sometimes I don't, depending on depending on the call and depending on the phase of the operation, right? Um, this company you were targeting, what what was their security maturity like? Did you try like a novel attack vector because they were quite mature, or just yes. because it was interesting to do? Yeah, they um, they are very mature. They have um, very mature security awareness program. Um, and they had not done vishing or voice voice phishing uh, in, until until I started working with them. They had they had done so many email based attacks that they they felt like they felt pretty comfortable with that, right? Um, in fact, I remember one year it wasn't the same year, but one year uh, talking to one of their employees, and their employee started explaining to me what social engineering is. Um, he, he said, he said, this sounds like a social engineering call. And I said, social engineering call, what is that? And he said, well, social, I, I said, why would somebody do that? I don't understand. What is social engineering? Um, and he proceeded to explain to me what social engineering was. It was really, it was really fun. Um, that's one of, one of my favorite call recordings is, is to have somebody to explain that to me. Yeah. I think that's the thing that people often don't realize with these engagements, whereas, you know, a digital pen test you kind of you produce a report and it goes off to people actually these ones you can really start to see some positive things in like the training that's been delivered to staff and those positive interactions where you can go back and actually highlight people who've done a great job because of the training that's been delivered prior so that's always a really positive thing to to see in these engagements that you perhaps don't have necessarily on the the sort of digital purely digital you know right. coding exploit side of things yeah a- absolutely in fact um, with our with our reporting, our reporting is kind of similar to most penetration tests or red team, uh, but we have we basically have five categories of findings. We have critical severity, high severity, medium severity, low severity, but we ha- also have one called positive observation, where it's not just a bullet point on the report; it's actually a finding that says, "When I tried to do this, you know, Sally." stopped me by doing such and such and such and such, you know, this behavior should be encouraged, you know, way to go, Sally. And in, and also, in addition to Sally, these other employees exhibited, you know, positive behaviors, secure behaviors. Um, you know, they were polite, but they refused to do what I asked them to do, you know, those kind of things. That's fantastic to see that those things being called out and re- recognized in the organization, because Far too often we just blame the end users for making mistakes yes. rather than rewarding them for, for doing the right thing. So really positive spin yeah, on well, it there. You have to remember, people are not machines, okay? You can patch a machine and it doesn't feel a thing, right? It doesn't care. But people are different and and people have habits. And to break a habit, it takes repeated reminding and training and awareness. And, you know, it, it, it's not just a one and done thing. And apart from the the training of individuals there to understand these attacks and recognize social engineering, what are some other takeaways from this kind of engagement for a, a business? So, um, the and this is one of the main reasons that I that I put that call number six in the presentation. Um, and I, I don't know if you can post a link to the the presentation. It's out there on the internet somewhere. Um, that very last call, we drive the point home that it's not just educating the users, right? Yes, that's part of it, but it's also least privilege, right? It's also not providing the user a loaded gun, you know, and then just cross your fingers and hope they don't shoot themselves. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's also reporting and the process, um, you know, the, the, the staff, how they're familiar with each other. We should, we should learn who our cohorts are, um, who our coworkers are. Right. Um, in fact, it reminds me of, I was doing a, a physical pen test, um, for a client one time and I walked in and I was pretending to be, the IT person. And I told him, you know, it was, like, it was a retail uh, establishment. And I walked up to the counter and said, you know, I'm Chris, I'm with IT. I need to get back to the server room. There's, there's been a problem or something. And the, and the, the lady, before I could even finish all those sentences, she picked up the phone and called her supervisor. And she said, hold on, hold on here, tell her. <laughs> I'm kind of like, Okay, so now I have to repeat that same spiel to someone else on the phone. I'm not really ready for that. 
And, you know, so just literally bringing a different person, bringing an additional coworker with you um, can really throw a social engineer off their game and, and protect you, right? So uh, a lot of times, if you just involve another person that can help you take a minute to think about the, the pretext and, and avoid getting, getting full. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Cause a lot of these social engineering attacks often work on pressuring someone into, I need to get somewhere fast. You're in my way. This is a critical business thing. The management wants this. And just giving people a the confidence that the business will back them if they question something, and b like say that breathing space just to think about the situation, maybe bring in a second opinion, and uh, and verify you're happy with it. Now that, that, that's that's wonderful to hear. Um, as we sort of come to the, the end of the, the session here today, one of the things I wanted to ask you about actually was the TEDx presentation you'd done, the, the cyber skills gap, because I think that's a really good concept. And if you could just briefly summarize what you mean by the cyber skills gap um, and why this is relevant. Yeah, so um, I, you know, it's it's all it's been all over the news and and um, for years now that that companies need security expertise in their midst, right? The attackers are winning, and if you if you look at any headlines these days, everybody's got to admit we're understaffed, we're underskilled in the industry around security. The problem that I see is that most individuals, most organizations are attacking this, thinking that it's a lack of knowledge. And honestly, it's not. <laughs> it's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of degrees in cybersecurity and, and formal training in cybersecurity. There's, I think the last time I counted, there were like 75 different security-related professional certifications. I mean, there's plenty of training out there. There is free training out there, Cyberary and all that stuff. What is missing is the hacker mindset. Because even though an, an organization, a company doesn't want to admit it, what they want is they want a hacker. They want some hackers to join their staff. They want someone who's going to look at something and say, how can that be weaponized? How could that hurt someone? Even if it's a fluffy bunny, right? Even if it's just an innocuous looking, you know, nice, pretty little thumb drive, right? How could that actually hurt someone? That's the mindset that they're looking for. But the, the, our education system is not producing that. We're producing knowledge workers. We're not producing hackers. And so that's why one of the one of my big uh, recommendations to people is participate in CTFs because to to succeed at most CTFs, you have to display some amount of the hacker mindset, right? Um, and the, and the thing is, like children are born with it. Children hack all the time. They hack their parents all the freaking time, right? How many times Absolutely, do they look yeah. up with those puppy dog eyes and go, mommy, I just want that lollipop. And they get it, right? They've been social engineering uh, parents all the time. It's just that somehow along the way, they lose it when they become, when they, when they progress into adulthood. And so uh, to me, that's, that's the key. We get, we've got to nurture that hacker mindset and, and, and let kids keep it. Yeah, absolutely. You reminded me of an example of some friends of ours who uh, whose children seem to wear through USB cables at a phenomenal rate. And they discovered why they're wearing through them was because they put some parental controls on the tablet and the parental controls stopped working when the battery went into power save mode, so below 5%. So the child was just ah. plugging and unplugging to keep the battery between 1% and 5% to disable <laughs> the parental controls so they could play the, the game that they wanted to play at the hours they wanted to play it. And it's... The wow. things that you know the adult think well, I've deployed the software, I've ticked the box, done the controls, but right. that hacker mindset means that the child is working their way around it. So yeah, I think that's really good advice to have that childlike <laughs> curiosity for things and yep. be able to do. And people like yourself who've come in not from a necessary technology background yeah. initially, but the curiosity and you can learn the technology. What you often can't learn is the, the yeah. curiosity that goes with that. That is awesome. That is a great example, James. I, I've never heard that. Um, I, I'm going to use that one. <laughs> I like that. That's amazing. Feel free. Yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> I, it's just one of those things that's always stuck with me as a great example of yeah. you think you've got all the controls in place, but then, you know, and it's, it's a bit like the Bill Gates quote, isn't it? You know, you pick the, the lazy person to do the thing because they'll work out a way around it that isn't, yes. doesn't, you know, the child's not going <laughs> to develop a zero day exploit to play 
Angry Birds, they're going to work out wh uh, where the weakness lies in the, in the setup. So in, in, in your uh, career, as we wind to the end of it, is there anything you would have done differently if you could go back in time? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> has nothing to do with security, but uh, I would have maximized my investment in a retirement program, like a 401k, from the very start. My my daughter did that, and she's probably gonna she's probably gonna retire at uh, who knows forty five, maybe fifty years old, or at least she'll be financially ready to do that. And I spent like my first ten years of, of professional career didn't didn't contribute to anything for retirement. Yep, I, so, I think so. That's kids, that save I, your I've money. Got, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yep, absolutely. I, I'm in a very similar position to you looking to retire when I'm about 85. So uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fantastic advice. Yeah. And finally, is, is there anything you'd like to share, anything you'd want to get out in the world, any conferences, events, information, things that you're up to that you'd sure. like to tell people about? Yeah, absolutely. So we are, uh, so so my wife's name is Chris, by the way. So we're Chris and Chris um, in security. And we are confirmed to uh, be running our OSINT CTF. The next one is at CypherCon, and that's with a Y. CypherCon, it's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I want to say it's March 30th. In fact, I think tickets just went on sale this week, uh, as well as well as the CFP got open. Uh, and then, and then we'll definitely be at our favorites, uh, NolaCon, which is in New Orleans, and that's uh, like mid-May. Uh, and then we'll be back at Gurkhan, which is Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, and I believe that's at the end of September. I don't remember exact date, but um, but definitely those next three conferences will be running our OSINT CTF. We're already committed and excited about them. That's great. Well, hopefully people will be able to uh, pop over and get involved in those and, and see you there. And it's been fantastic talking to you today. I've really enjoyed our conversation and uh our attempts at the, the role play. I think, you know, I learned a lot actually <laughs> just looking at the amount of it, what seems like innocuous information that's being pulled out bit by bit and then and used to build on more and more. So that was really great to see. And uh, thank you for the advice that uh, you've offered there. Everyone should start planning for their pensions and thinking of their futures yeah. as early as possible. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you, Chris, for joining us. Uh, yeah. People can you, find Jeff. you and, and Chris at conferences. And thank you to our producer, Jesse and uh, Sarah, who make this podcast possible. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks, James. Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.